I was uh, about eight years ago, I suppose. I don't have the exact date, but we spoke to you, and we took a, a pledge that day together, and you probably have forgotten it, and, and so on. But we want to do that again. This is the first Sunday of the new year, and uh, well, all of us have made some New Year's resolutions, maybe already have lost uh, the battle against uh, some of those. I put on this suit this morning. Usually I don't wear a suit, uh, wear a sport coat of some kind. It fits fine as long as I don't breathe. <laughs> but uh, we will get along all right, I suppose. Well, we're going to have a take a time for a little bit of pledging ourselves. We're going to take a pledge this morning. We're going to have you raise your hand and take that pledge. And this is the pledge I want you to take. For the year 2015, I will mind my own business. You ready? Put your right hand up. Put your right hand up. For the year 2015, put your hand up, Jonathan. We'll have to start over. For the year 2015, I will mind my own business. You're going to break that for sundown. <laughs> but this is a time of, of making some resolutions about what we want to do and want to be. And, and uh, it is the beginning time. And uh, the, the text of the morning uh, deals with that. We're going to be talking about uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, what we usually call and title the triumphal entry. And uh, we're going to talk about that. It was the, the beginning date for Christianity. Uh, by Sunday of the week after he comes into Jerusalem, we'll have Christianity's first day with a brilliant sunrise and resurrection. We're going to talk about that this morning and how that is the beginning. And those who were a part of that, uh, that multitude, as Matthew calls it, and we'll participate in that as well because, you see, all of us are a part of a multitude and, and the world outside this building is the world's multitude as well. We're going to talk about that together. So if you have your scriptures with you and we invite you to read with us uh, out of Matthew, the 21st chapter, beginning with the first verse through the 11th verse. <clears throat> Let us stand together to honor God's Word. <clears throat> and I read from the King James this morning. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethage under the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples and said to them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you will find an ass tied and a colt with her Loose them, and bring them to me. And if a man should aught say aught to you, uh, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. And all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy kingdom cometh unto thee meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a colt upon the foal of an ass. And the disciples went, and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put them on 
their clothes, and they set them thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before, that followed, cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, asking, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's set the scene a little bit. Here is a an entrance kind of beginning for Jesus coming to Jerusalem. It was that Passover week. The, uh, the roads leading to Jerusalem were crowded with pilgrims and others coming to be a part of the Passover festival. It was an important time for them, and they were a part of the crowd. And in all of that, in the midst of that busyness, Jesus comes as well and comes to the city. And as he comes in, uh, there were those that lined the way. Some of them hadn't intended to be a part of that. They were simply there on other business. The, the things that had taken their time during the week uh, and the multiplying of some of those on daily basis involved their going after water and buying food in the marketplace and bartering for things and perhaps other kinds of businesses had to be taken care of, and they were a part of that as well, caught up in the crowd of the parade, as you say, as Jesus comes along. Children playing as they always do with their various toys of the day, chattered and talked to each other, laughing and scampering about. Business people with their folders of business sheaves to be signed and labeled and stamped and were there as well, encountered the passing of the parade. Women who had gone into the village to buy something for a sick child were there too. It's beggars, smelly poorly dressed, lean and gaunt, were there too. Old people, with not long to live in their day, looked out through weathered eyes and wrinkled faces to watch the entourage of the Master Galilean. A multitude, it says in Matthew, I read that out of the King James. There's two reasons why I do that. One is that I, that's how I began with King James, and I memorized what little I know of the Scripture out of the King James. I don't intend to start over on that. And another reason, perhaps as important as any, is that the one I have is big print. You have to be a realist, you know, practical about what you do. And so that's far here. And it's the event you see is, is a part of the ongoing kind of introduction for Jesus. 
Now, scholars uh, and the commentators on this scripture, on these, all these verses, divide it into two sections, really. There's the first part, which has to do with the procuring of a, a seed to, to ride, and how that works out in, in completing part of the prophecy out of the old scriptures. And then there is a second part that begins when he actually begins to come in and the people are all there. These are distinctly different. The first part has some theological basis to it. The second part, with except for one little part in the 11th verse, or the 10th verse, doesn't have much of that. It's historical. It has to do with an event, is the history, the chronicle of an event of Jesus coming into the city during Passover week. And that's about all that has to be said about the history of it. We know no more than that. It's not uh, uh, elucidated anywhere else in, in the Scripture. It is, in fact, less of it is given in the other Gospels. Synoptics in particular do almost nothing of it, a little more, but not much. So this is a historical event more than anything else. And the crowd is there. These are important days for them. Some of them have been bothered, you see, by the, the, the crowd. They had intended to go ahead and do whatever they needed to do and go back to their usual activities, the shopkeepers to their business and the loggers to theirs, the Pharisees to their books, and the scribes to their writings, the children in their play. They hadn't really intended to be caught up in the multitude. There were some there who were, for they were part of the entourage of Jesus, but there weren't very many of those, for he was in that last part of his year of rejection, and the followers had slipped away. He was concerned about that in John, the sixth chapter, the 67th verse, he talks about that. And he asked them after some hard preaching, will you also go away? And now, now, the last week. But they had come, you see, not so much of, of their interest in what the, the parade would be, or those who were passing for, it had not been announced, and they didn't know it was going to be there. But at the very center of all of that, Jesus comes in. So the question that is asked, who is this? Well, they had laid down their, their garments for uh, him to pass over, and they had stripped from the scant vegetation what little was verdant and put it on the ground as well. And they were crying out in praise, Hosanna, Hosanna. But most weren't. Most weren't doing that. They were watching, listening, gazing upon something they didn't understand. The Master Galilean was there. Perhaps they had been told something might happen, but we don't know that. But they certainly were not expecting this. There was miscommunication here. They had perhaps misunderstood, didn't understand really what was going on. And it wasn't what they had expected and what they had been told, perhaps, if they went uptown. 
There's a story I want to tell you about that. Uh, most of it's not true, but I still want to tell it to you. Back in October, got an email from a nephew down in Venezuela working for an old company, and he said, Uncle Russell, uh, I'm going to send you for the, uh, this time of the year, I'm going to send you a gift, I'm going to send you a bird. Well, I, I hadn't thought much about that, didn't know what he, on earth he was talking about. Sure enough, a few days later, the UPS fellow came along in that truck and brought the cage to the house. And there was the bird in there, the prettiest bird I believe I've ever seen in my life. The bird had yellow feathers and green feathers and blue feathers and red feathers and had a big yellow beak on him and big yellow feet and he'd strut around. Prettiest bird I think I'd ever seen in my life. Well, we want to take care of that bird. I put him out in a little uh, cage back in the back and got some bird feed and some corn and fed him, you know. Well, uh, Thanksgiving week came along and I looked at the bird. He'd fattened up pretty well. Now, don't get ahead of me now here. We, we, so, uh, Dot fixed that bird up. That's the first bird I think I've ever eaten. When she had it all fixed up, she had gizzard gravy and dumplings and yellow corn dressing for it and sweet potatoes and marshmallows to go with it. Absolutely the best bird I'd ever had in my life. Never eaten anything better than that. And we were glad for it. It's a pretty bird, but he tasted really good. A few days later, over the weekend, he called on the phone. He said, Uncle Russell, how'd you like the bird? I said, oh, it's the best bird I'd ever seen, the prettiest thing. And it was wonderful. And I've never tasted a better bird. There's a long silence. And he said, Uncle Russell, you didn't eat that bird, did you? I said, of course I ate that bird. It's the best bird I've ever had. Your aunt daughter fixed that bird up. She had it all done up well. And we had, we had uh, the dumplings with it. And she fixed sweet potato. And that was really good. Had marshmallows floating around on top of that. And gizzard gravy and yellow dressing. It was just the best you'd ever. I've never eaten better in my life. He said, Uncle Russell. Surely you didn't eat that bird, did you? I said, yes, we did. He said, did you not know that bird could speak three languages? I said, well, he should have said something. <laughs> That's the definition of miscommunication. Your English teachers can use that. Need to make it clear when you say something. Miscommunication. A lot of those folks were there that day. They didn't intend to be there, but they were there, caught up in the crowd. And the entourage of Jesus passed by with Jesus riding on this ass. Now, that's not a donkey, incidentally. We should clear that up right now. Your, your scripture may say donkey. It's not a donkey. Don't ride donkeys like that. I grew up where they had donkeys everywhere. They grew, they grew wild in our hillsides in southern New Mexico in that little mining town where we lived. They'd come in and eat, get in our garden, and Mama had me shoo them away. That's where I first learned to shoe horses, you know, shoo, shoo, you know, got them out of the way. 
They were everywhere. We used to catch them uh, uh, and get on and ride them bareback without bridle or anything, and we enjoyed that too as boys. Got thrown off a few times and skinned up, but we enjoyed doing it. But they were, those are burros or donkeys, miniature ass. An ass is 13, 14, 15 hands, as big as a small horse or even larger horses in some cases. And that's what they were riding in those days. And so they brought, they brought it, and Jesus was riding that, and he was a part of the parade. Let me just use the term that's passing by. Well, then there was a question asked, you see. And the question is asked in the 10th verse there, where it says, who is this? Who is this? Well, they answered, this is Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. They're wanting to know what's, what, what is that? And the multitude out there, the multitude is still asking the questions. Still asking questions, what's going on there? What's going on with the, what you call the church? What's going on with, with religion in these days? What's, what is all the noise and the hubbub that we see and hear? What is all of that? We spend most of our time defining ourselves, defining our theology, and defining our liturgy, and defining our creeds, what we believe. We do a lot of that. We're answering a lot of questions nobody's asking, incidentally. A lot of our preaching these days is answering questions that the multitude is not asking. We spend a lot of times like soldiers cleaning their weapons, but never get around to fighting or engaging in combat. So who is the crowd? Well, the crowd is out there, the public. But you see, they're outside. The church today is involved in and so much for itself, we have little time really for, for the crowd, the multitude. You see, we preach to ourselves inside the stockade, inside the bunker. We teach our own in our Sunday school classes inside the bunker. We have our activities for youth inside the bunker and senior citizens too and all the rest of us we fellowship inside the bunker and then we say to the multitude come inside our bunker and we'll tell you about our god shame on us the great commission doesn't talk about that it talks about going and doing but there was a great multitude. We don't know how many, but there must have been a large crowd. And they were there, and they watched, they watched the parade. Who is the multitude? There were three outstanding scholars that have done some extensive writing in this area. I have their books. And their writings as well. I've studied it at length. The pastor mentioned it, I think, last week or so. And uh, one of those writings, uh, 
The Rise of the Nuns by James White, pastor of one of the fastest growing churches in America, incidentally. And he talks about those nuns. Those are the ones that check on the surveys, none of the above, when it is asking what, uh, what is your religion, affiliation, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, whatever. They'll check none of the above. These are the nuns. Dr. Diana Bass also is one of the writers, perhaps the most prolific of them. She uh, holds the chair of religious studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara and is in much demand as a speaker at conventions and including Southern Baptist Convention. And then Ed Seltzer, Dr. Ed Seltzer, who is president of the research division of LifeWay, our Southern Baptist organization for print and communication. And in, in, in that book by Dr. Bass, uh, the title of it is Christianity After Religion. She talks about what we do as a part of our religion. Not our spirituality, but our religion. We've got all of these things we're supposed to be doing, you see. And she categorized and divides them out, uh, she and the others as well, into three categories. There are those... Uh, unaffiliated, these are they that have had no connection whatsoever or presently have no connection whatsoever with any kind of organized or institutionalized religion by title, Baptist, Catholic, uh, Presbyterian, whatever, a Jewish, there are none of the above. They're unaffiliated. These are they that at one time or another may have been in the church but have left it for various reasons, reasons of uh, dismay and disenchantment with the way the church is going and, and what it's doing. Uh, perhaps in some cases a, a, a honest kind of disagreement with its doctrine and its positions and uh, disbelief about some of them. Uh, in some cases they have become wearied and tired uh, by all of the trappings that they see that we call church life. And uh, as she often, uh, she says in her book, she calls it and gives it titles as well. She calls the, the modern church is so active today in two special areas in particular. We're involved, she says, in the county of the noses and nickels. How many do you have in attendance? And how, how much money are you raising? How are you doing with your budget? Have you noticed? Let me just be personal here. That at our business meetings that we have a quarterly basis... Uh, not very much time is spent uh, to give us an account of the number of folks that have accepted the Lord during the last quarter. We have a long discussion on the budget. Shame on us for that. And she says that's one of the things that turns the multitude away out there. And all of the other kind of things that we have, those requirements that they do a certain kind of thing or they believe a certain thing or we're so concerned with uh, orthodoxy that they fit the mold and uh, whether they'll fit in or not. Those are the unaffiliated. Then there are the affiliated. These are they that are inside the church, perhaps on roll, attend very regularly in some cases. Some cases they're sort of sporadic, but they, uh, they're affiliated. They're a part of it. They've been voted in, as we say, in Baptist congregational life, so they're a part of the church. They, some of them have attended faithfully in Sunday school for many years and 
are always there. You can count on their presence. These uh, affiliated folks, uh, well, some of them, uh, some of them just are affiliated, and that's about all. They may serve on committees in some cases and not do a whole lot more than that, but they're what we call affiliated. They're, they're in our Sunday school classes, and they're in our pews, and they're in our choir loft. These are people that, they're here, but they've never won a lost person to Christ. They've never given witness. They're just affiliated. Dr. Bass says there's a large group of these folks, and they're out there. Some of these that are affiliated are, are those that were reared in the church, learned its every step, moved through the chairs, as I say, reared in the church. Incidentally, that's a proper English if you use it that way. You rear children and raise chickens. Just remember your, your high school and college English courses. But they were reared in the church. They brought in and assimilated all of the things that we do together, and that just becomes a part of them. It's a part of the hide that they wear. It's a part of the armor that they also have that deflects that kind of sharp inquiry into how busy are you for God's sake and His kingdom. And then, of course, there are the, the engaged Dr. Bass talks about these, as does Ed Seltzer about them. The engaged, these are they that carry the load, do the prayer vigils, do the visitation, go visit you when you're sick, call you on the phone and ask you if there's something they can do. I'm counted as one of the seniors in the church. I've been around a while, I believe. At least uh, if I go by what my mama told me, I was born a long time ago. And uh, if we get a snow, invariably I'll get a call from somebody in this church, and they'll say, Brother Russell, uh, it snowed, of course, as you know. I just wonder if you need for us me and some other men in the church or some of us, we want to come out there and, and shovel the snow off your driveway and sidewalks. That says something to me. Or when I've been out sick, as I have on occasion, folks would call and want to know how I'm doing. These are folks who have a, a penchant for the unfortunate and the downtrodden. They have a tender heart. They carry the load. These are the engaged. They are the faithful of the faithful. They are humble in their spirituality. You might want to be careful sometime about this thing of spirituality, you know. There is such a thing as uh, conceited, conceited spirituality. And uh, some of us are very proud of how spiritual we are and how godly are we are, and how much we pray. You want to know how much I pray? Just ask me. I'll tell you. I, I, I pray regularly, and, and I, I read my Bible every day, too. In fact, I've read it through about 12 or 13 times. I plan to do it again this year. 
You want to know how spiritual I am? You can just ask me. You want to? Some folks are like that. These may be the engaged, may not be. But these are the folks in the entourage that called out Hosanna. They are they that carry the load. The workers. The workers. And they were there. Others that fell away, of course, as I said a moment ago in our introduction time, in John, Jesus had spoken very pointedly about some sins and things that were going on in the lives of the people, and they were, as he spoke, they left and walked away. Finally, Jesus said to his disciples, as the crowd had dwindled down to almost them alone, will you also go away? These are they that don't go away. They stay there. They stay there. The going may get rough and difficult, but they stay there. You can depend on these folks. They do the exposure. They let you see them. They do the reflection as well. Whatever you want to think is all right, because I intend to let my life be what it ought to be. Dr. Bass brings out three main categories of the engaged. Let me talk about them a moment, because I think it's important if we're to make some application of what we're doing here. She calls it the three B's of the engaged First is believe. I believe. That means to commit oneself. In John, the word believe in the Greek means more than just to have a mental conception about something in agreement with it. It also means a commitment to as many as received him. To as many as received him. To them gave he the power to become the sons of God even to as many as believed, committed themselves to Him. These are the believers. They've had a vital, active, warm, fervent experience of regeneration and change. And it shows by their lives. It shows. These are the believers not just a part of the crowd. These are believers. Dr. Bass was reared a Methodist. Moved from Baltimore when she was a young girl. Her father was a florist and had a florist business there and moved to Phoenix, Mesa, Arizona and finished her years of schooling there. Came to Duke University and took her doctorate there in theology. And she talks about herself as a follower of Jesus. You want to know about my Christian experience? She says, and I would cite her with that. She says, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I worship in a Methodist church. Russell, who are you? I am a follower of Jesus. I've committed myself to him, and I worship at Pitts Baptist Church. I believe. The second B that she has in that list is belong. I'm a member and a part 
a participant actively so in a community of faith. You see, there's something about that. Did you listen to the shepherd's prayer this morning? Did you listen to that? I said, some of us this, this week have had a hard week. Some of us have been sick. Lord, some of us have passed through difficult times. This is the community of faith. We care about one another. We put our arms out in helping one another. We're participants in a continuing kind of experience, fervent and alive. It is continuous, meaning it has no pauses in it. It's continuous. All three of these scholars make some prediction about the future of this community of faith and perhaps Perhaps some little children living today will see this as it comes, if it's true, and it probably is, because these folks have done their homework. But the same big churches like this will pass the past, be a thing of the past. Instead, we will have smaller communities that will be family-oriented, three or four hundred probably at the most, and we come together in support of each other, in prayer for each other, in concern for each other. And along with that will come, of course, uh, a demise of the professional clergy, she says, and they say, Ed Sethler says that, as we know it today. We become a family of faith again, participants together on the journey, being a part of the pilgrimage passing the multitude, and they will watch us. And then the third area that she has is behave. And I think that's very important and sometimes is bypassed. We don't sometimes expect a whole lot of our people except that they be regular in their attendance and support the church and do all of that. And that multitude sees that and they hear it too. And they come to visit us and they they hear all of that, concerned about the number that are here and, and the number uh, that were in the other service. And, and oh, by the way, don't forget your tithing boxes out there as you leave. The multitude sees that and hears that. Behaving, you see, has to do with what others see. Our word becomes our bond. We ought not to have to sign our names. I have a very close friend who was a pastor in Pennsylvania for many, many years, now retired. He said when he went there 50 years ago as a pastor, he said the, that those community all around them were, and the countryside was settled and farmed by the Amish people, devout believers. And he said all the small banks in those little small towns were home-owned, of course. There weren't big chains then. And he said, these folks could make loans at the banks, and when the new banks, mergers came along, and big Bank of America and Wells Fargo and all began to buy out these smaller banks, 
they were perplexed and amazed to find that there were these loans out to these Amish farmers and there was no signature on the loan. And they inquired why. They said, well, all we needed from them was a handshake. If they said they'd pay, they'd pay. The multitude sees that. Our word ought to be our bond. Our activities ought to reflect something that's happened to us. A change of heart and life and motives and intent ought to characterize the person you see standing here in front of you this morning, as well as those that share the pew where you are now. Behave, she says, is one of those. And that's important. Let me go back to that middle one. Belong. This is the fellowship that I have chosen to be a part of. I don't come here to be fed. I hear that from occasion. Folks left another church to come here. They leave this church to go somewhere else. I say, why did you leave Pitts Baptist Church? Well, I wasn't being fed. What a juvenile excuse that is. Being fed. Why don't you just look at that? An opportunity for service. Opportunity to help someone. An opportunity to pray for with someone. An opportunity to put my arm around a hurting friend. Part of this community. A community of faith. We wear our children with with carefulness and trembling and fear as well. Three boys came along in our home, big strapping fellows now. Our oldest one is an active deacon at one of his big church where he's a member down in South Carolina. The other boys are active in their churches, one close by, another in Raleigh. But it wasn't always so tranquil, let me assure you, that those boys were teenagers and they, uh, of course, were the preacher's boys. Had some problems with them, as I think all of you who've had teenagers had. I think they might, uh, they learned to do some of the things they did. You see, they had to play with the deacon's children growing up. <laughs> Part of it. Didn't get any trouble with the law, but they, they sure kept the princes and myself awake into the, mo in the morning hours sometimes where we never went to sleep until they were home, and neither did you, remember? Remember? So there's a place for community, this community of faith that we share with one another. It's important that we, we con are concerned about others as well. Let me just project a couple of things for you to think about, just to be provocative, if nothing more. At our... Sunday school class, I teach the, well, the oldest class we have for Sunday school people in our church. We have uh, 40, 50, 60 sometimes, depends on the weather and other things. If the weather's like it is today, arthritis keeps some of them home and others just don't make it, you know. But uh, I think about the first Sunday in, in December, we had a visiting couple one morning and they came in and they were well dressed and and friendly. I don't know whether they were looking for a church or 
just passing through or they were here for the weekend with the family. We don't know that, or at least I don't know that. But in the conversations, uh, uh, they were invited to our Sunday school party, our Christmas party. They didn't come, but they weren't in town, I suppose. They were just passing through. They didn't come, but they were invited to our Christmas party because for whatever reasons, we thought they might fit in. On a Sunday morning, we have a couple come and take a seat on one of our pews in morning worship. Their clothes are ill-fitting and certainly out of date. Probably, some of it at least, was bought at Goodwill. They find a place on a pew. There is a noticeable odor about them. We called it, and still do, body odor. It was there. At the end of the service, do we go to them and ask them, would you like to attend our Christmas party? I'll wait a moment while you think. On a Sunday morning, we have a, a young lady who comes and takes her place on a pew all by herself down toward the front in our congregation. She's far along in her childbearing experience, maybe the last of the seventh or beginning her eighth month. We don't know, but well along. It's obvious. She is a little nervous and fidgety as she sits there, well-dressed. And then we begin our song service, and she stands along with the rest of us, but she doesn't sing. She doesn't know the words. You see, she doesn't attend church. And we notice that. She's uncomfortable there by herself. Not a single lady in our church leaves her comfortable pew beside her husband and goes over and sits beside her so that she does not sit through the service alone. I'll let you think about that. And the multitude was there, you see. And the parade was passing them by. Jesus was there. The hosannas were being said. The songs were being sung. The choir was singing. All the pomp and ceremony of religion is there. And the multitude watches watches the multitude. And they ask, who is that? And we simply reply, that's Jesus. We don't invite them to our Christmas party. We just tell them who Jesus is. Is that the Great Commission?
all of us need, I think, to think seriously about what we're going to do in this year. Now, you took a, a, an oath a while ago. Remember that pledge you made? That was just one of those fastidious kind of things that we do to pass time and introduction. But now comes a time for us to look seriously at our, our ourselves. What are we going to do with this year besides lose weight or study a little better for young people? Eat right? Get enough sleep? Exercise? The year 2000 is on us. And the parade is passing. And the multitude is watching. The multitude. The multitude. Outside the walls of the bunker. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, we ask that you will help us to be what we ought to be now, obedient to your will and the call of your Spirit, that what you prompt us to do, we will do. There are those here who need you desperately. Some have never really found you yet, never committed themselves to the experience of, of change and alteration and newness made available through your magnificent gift, Calvary. Give us courage to do that. And there are those that just never really committed themselves as, oh, they come regularly, and they, but they really haven't put themselves through that pledging kind of thing. Give us a renewed spirit that has warmth to it, a spirit of of tenderness, a, a spirit of being more than just a part of the church, but rather of a mission, a follower of Jesus. And there are those also who are dedicated, and they may want to just renew that again, kindle, rekindle a fire that's already there, Perhaps find this place as a community of faith for their continued fellowship and unite with this. Whatever it is that you press upon them in these moments now, we pray you will, and they will respond in Jesus' name. Amen.